This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Christina E., Assistant Professor of Modern Japanese Literature in the Department of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia. Dr. E's book, Colonizing Language, Cultural Production, and Language Politics in Modern Japan and Korea, is forthcoming from Columbia University Press in 2018. Dr. E, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Most of your research has been from the perspective of, of literature, uh, and especially from the pr- perspective of Korea. Yes. So what does a major restoration look like from your perspective? Yes, good question. If I could start maybe and explain kind of what I've done thus far and then try to think about the major restoration in relation to that, I think that would work most best for me. So up until now, I've researched primarily Japanese language literature by Korean writers, uh, but from primarily from the 1930s through the 1950s, so not actually during Meiji. Uh, one of the reasons why I do so is because it's quite an interesting period of time where we're seeing a lot of Japanese language writing coming out of the colonies, not just Korea, but uh, Taiwan, all throughout the empire. Until recently, though, these Japanese language texts uh, from Korea have received fairly low critical attention, not a lot of critical attention. Uh, one of the reasons is that by the end of the war in 1945, Korean was claimed as Korea's national language. It's kugel uh, in Korean. And Japanese language texts were purged from the canon. Uh, but at the same time, these same texts were excluded from Japan's literary canon, which is reconfigured as a national rather than imperial one. Uh, but the continuities of colonialism, uh, I would argue, continued even to the so-called uh, post-colonial period. And uh, you see this embodied, uh, for example, in the creation of the so-called Zainuchi, or resident Korean community in Japan after 1945. Uh, so in other words, my work, I try to think a lot about the intersections of ethnic nationalism, language politics, and post-colonial identities. So the major restoration isn't something that I talk about directly, but its influence looms large, uh, particularly as the ideologies that were produced in the wake of the major restoration fundamentally informed both nation-building and uh, empire-building projects. And something I argue, actually, in, in this book that I've written, which is forthcoming from Columbia University Press, is that nation building and empire building were simultaneous processes in Meiji Japan. And you really can't understand one without understanding the other. Reminds me, I mean, Andre Schmidt's great article talking about critiquing uh, Japanese historiography for separating the nation from the empire. Yeah. I mean, it's been a very influential one in, in my own work as well, talking about how the state formation project kept pushing outwards and outwards. Mm-hmm. And finally, it does kind of lead into empire building. So this book that's coming out next spring, actually, by Columbia University Press is called Colonizing Language, Colon, uh, Cultural Production and Language Politics in Modern Japan and Korea. So as you can see there, I'm thinking about cultural production through and in relation to language. And literature, of course, is fundamentally about language. So what does it mean um, that a Korean writer might write in the Japanese language, how is that inflected in their texts, uh, what we understand larger context. The writers that I consider in this book, uh, both Korean and Japanese, um, all of them, I mean, I choose them because they, they shared a preoccupation with creating or understanding or trying to fix the borders of a Japanese literary canon, one that was not necessarily 
linked to Japan, the mainland, Meiji. And they do so in part because of the social political conditions uh, in which they wrote, right? So often, if you're writing in the colonies or you're writing kind of in relation to the colonies, those borders are very much in question, right? They can't be taken for granted. Uh, so I think in the fiction that we see produced um, by writers, particularly starting in the 1930s onwards, um, language use itself becomes a site of contestation and negotiation. It has urgent political ramifications. This question of who gets to belong to the national canon, who gets to claim the national language as their own, uh, it's not um, simply a reflection of Japanese empire and all of its con contradictions, but really constitutes it. And I think um, the answers given for that question change, even though the borders of Japan did. What kind of writers do you look at? I, I mean, the ones that come to mind are uh, Yi Kuangsu, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. the, this, uh, uh, I assign this uh, piece, Aika is yeah. love in, in my class yes. uh, this year. Yes. Um, so Aika, which was written, I believe, in 1909. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. a really great instance of uh, this text that was produced actually before Korea was formally mm -hmm. colonized, um, and yet it's written in Japanese and it's thinking about Japan-Korea relations during this critical time, um, something that I look at as well. Another writer I think that I could mention, uh, actually in the Japan context, would be someone like Ueda Kazutoshi. And these big thinkers, uh, again, to be thinking about Meiji period and what's going on in Meiji, uh, Ueda Kazutoshi, who is really considered to be one of the leading architects of uh, Japanese national language policies in Meiji Japan and had a huge influence, I think, on how those policies uh, were disseminated in schools and uh, other kinds of institutions in the colonies as well. Um, so something that uh, has really informed, I think, the ways in which I try to think about my own research is how exactly does linguistic nationalism work when you have this uh, nation, Japan, which is simultaneously trying to think about national language in relation to right, empire. Uh, these two things that are going on at the same time. And Ueda Kazutoshi is a good example because um, I mean, he has this really famous lecture that he gives in 1894 called uh, Kokugo to Kokato, or the national language of the nation state. It's this really famous lecture where he puts forth this argument that uh, a common unified language is essential for maintaining a common unified nation state. And he draws upon all these metaphors of uh, the blood and the body linked to the national body and so forth. But 1894, right, he's giving this talk actually uh, soon after the start of the Sino-Japanese War. And this lecture later gets published in an essay collection in 1895, soon after the war's end, uh, when right, Japan has formally colonized Taiwan. So uh, thinking about how uh, these discourses of national language as, first of all, something that synchronically links right, people together through space, uh, but then also diachronically, right, through time, through history, is also supposed to link you. Um, how then do the colonies uh, fit into that? relationship uh, is something that um, we'll continue to see and be articulated and grappled with in these works that come out by people like Iwang Su and mm -hmm. later going on to the 20s, 1930s, mm -hmm. and thereafter. I imagine, especially in the 1930s, when there's much more of this rhetoric of Naisen Itai or, mm -hmm. or Nisen Dosorong, Japan and Korea, one body, uh, joint ancestry theories. How how did Korean literature or literature written by Koreans in the 1930s fit into the national canon of Japan? Was it welcomed mm -hmm. as as part of this recognition that Japan had a multi ethnic empire? Uh, did they make an effort to to canonize these writers? 
uh, yes, well, yes and no, <laughs> I think is uh, the key thing. There's a kind of double bind that's going on. Uh, for example, the very word kokugo, the mm. national language, uh, it's a word that's employed in the colonies. Right? So Koreans who uh, are speaking Japanese are said to be speaking the national language. Uh, and again, it's part of this discourse that's trying to position a kind of uh, racial equality, right? Japan is saying, we are um, not colonizing you, Asia. We're, in fact, including you in our brotherhood, and we're fighting U.S. and European imperialism. And unlike them, we include you, and we, we kind of make you part of us. In reality, of course, that's absolutely not what's happening. And a lot of the legal social structures that are in place are very much informed by and kind of um, drawing upon European uh Precedence as well. Uh, same thing with literature too. So there's an effort, uh, in some ways, to promote, uh, to give a space to these Koreans um, and other people in the empire writing in Japanese. But when they do so, often they're marked as specifically writings by colonial writers. And in some ways, um, although this discourse of the national language allows them a space to speak, it kind of points to or gestures to an inclusive community. Uh, in reality, they're always still differentiated from the Naichi, from right, mainland Japan, through, for example, discourses of blood uh, or discourses of uh, historical time. I mean, speaking of, of Yi Guangsu, I know in the post-war period, he in particular was kind of written out of, of the canon. I, I think you mentioned that mm -hmm. in both cases there was uh, these Korean writers writing in Japanese. And I imagine that the same is true for Taiwanese writers as well. Uh, who were written out of the literary canons of, of their nation, but also written out of the Japanese literary canon. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on, on why were they written out so so quickly? Or, or so was it all just colonial memory? Uh, colonial memory, I think, is a crucial part of that, and mm -hmm. how yeah the colonial period or colonialism gets remembered and contextualized after 1945. And of course, in Korea, there's this great effort, uh, on the one hand, to call for liberation, right? And I mean, in Japan, we say the post-war period deferred to after 1945, but in Korea, it's the post-liberation period. So really thinking about uh, time in relation to Japanese imperialism. So uh, one of the ways in which I think uh, these agents of Korea can claim a kind of agency in relation to that is to say, we're going to eradicate right, all traces of Japanese empire. We're going to remove um, those affective as well as legal you know, traces of uh, imperialism from us. And one of the ways they try to do this is by, again, purging Japanese language itself from the canon. It's also linked, I think, to issues of collaboration. And it's a very thorny issue where someone like Iwang Su, of course, to write in Japanese in the 1930s was in some ways also to be aligned, whether contingently um, or right, actively, with Japan's imperialist also by the 1940s, like kind of war um, policies and uh, motives. So a lot of the writings that he does publish in the 1930s in Japanese is espousing precisely, right, this pan-Asian rhetoric with Japan at the top that's trying to uh, argue for um, a kind of becoming Japanese-ness that becomes quite problematic after 1945, as you can imagine. So that's also one of the reasons why uh, for a long time, uh, and people just, yeah, they purge it from the canon. They argue as it not belonging to the national politic and kind of this proper Korean ethnic nationalism that is supposed to take root after 1945. And then looking ahead into the, into the post-war in Japan, when you have ethnically Korean writers in Japan who are now writing in Japanese, uh, the Zainichi writers, so to speak, I mean, I, mean I, I imagine this must create a very ambivalent position for them as well. 
Yes, yeah. Um, particularly, I think, for writers who are in Japan uh, during the occupation period, so from 1945 to 1952. So we've got not only Japan as being a defeated nation and, um, and actually an empire that is no longer, but also in some sense colonized by the U.S. or from this, in this neo-colonial nation. And within that, Koreans in Japan are very much uh, trying to claim, again, a kind of autonomous agency for themselves or a kind of subjectivity that's not beholden to Japan, the nation state. Of course, immediate post-war period, uh, what we now see is the calcification of right, south-north competing governments uh, on the Korean Peninsula, uh, what would later become the Korean War, all these things uh, are in the future and are can't be predicted necessarily. So um, for a lot of these Koreans, um, they want to be able to uh, write, but often the only language they can do so in Japanese. So how how then can you claim a kind of Korean identity while doing so in Japanese? Well, what they do is they uh, reject this idea of, of Japanese as a national language. They instead use it as a tool, uh, but in some ways um, kind of fall into the same kinds of structures, the same kinds of discourses about blood and language and et cetera that we do see in 1945. Recently, the Zainichi Konkokujin writers have been kind of welcomed into the Japanese canon, at least I'm starting to see them published in English more. I, I was looking around for, for readings in my own class. I you know, came across Yu Midi and Yi Yangji. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, these are starting to come in and, and be recognized as part of Japanese literature. Where do they fit into the canon? Yeah, um, well, Yu Midi and Yi Yangji are really interesting cases. Of course, they're part of this later generation right. of right. uh, Zainichi writers who were born in Japan and grew up speaking Japanese as their first um, and or only language, um, have perhaps little... Uh, formal education in Korean or may have learned it um, as an elective or something in college, but of course nationally um, in terms of local belonging and also linguistic capabilities are very much rooted in Japan. So, uh, but at the same time they're marked as being apart again because this um, idea of Zainichi too, which marks them as being part of Japan but not uh, Japanese. Some people have embraced that very much and uh, this is when I think we also see this term Nihongo Bungaku emerging. So not Japanese literature, but Japanese language literature. We're writing in Japanese. We acknowledge that we have a Japanese language audience. Uh, We want to speak uh, to that audience, um, but we want to acknowledge also the historical formations that have made us uh, apart from the nation, the kind of discriminations that still exist, I guess, through those structures and um, not speaking for assimilation so much as recognition, particularly in the case, I think, of someone like Yangji. When you teach about the Meiji period as a whole, what are some of the things that you emphasize for your students in your literature classes? Uh, one of the things I try to emphasize is that the very idea of literature, again, instead of asking what is literature, perhaps it's better to ask, I mean, how did people, what did people think was literature, I guess. Um, so the word itself, bun and bungaku, we go through in class, uh, thinking about how this word operated in the Tokugawa period, for example, what constituted uh, literary writing, or what was considered to be valuable in terms of, right, kind of literary writing, 
versus what we see happening after 1868, why that comes about, um, how that affects language itself and uh, readerships and all this stuff. So rather than, I don't know, I guess my courses have a lot of history or <laughs> in, in them where we try to think about the history of these concepts and the histories of literature, along with looking at the text too. For historians, we very sharply make this divide at 1868 mm -hmm. and say, well, this is the beginning of modern history in Japan. And then we can we point to all of these reforms that the Meiji state undertakes and say, see, there's your modernity right there. Uh, but I'm uh, talking with friends and colleagues who teach literature. They often say, well, for us, it's the 1880s. Hmm. Where do you draw or what, what is what is it that defines modern literature? Mm -hmm. um, that's a question that I ask my students, actually, in all of my courses. Mm -hmm. And it's one that I tell them we can't answer until we've read all of these different texts throughout the semester. And we still won't probably be able to answer it, I think, mm -hmm. at the end of the, um, the course, because it is such a big one. Uh, I kind of follow critics like Karatani Kojin, Reitin, who points out that this term, modern Japanese literature, should really have made square quotes around each word. What is modern? What is Japanese? What is literature? I mean, these terms um, themselves uh, right, are, are the subject of debate and undergo recontextualization after 1868. So I guess when you're thinking about um, you know, ways in which language and genbun uchi and new formations of uh, literature and discourses of literature shulsetsu emerge. 1880s is certainly key, but uh, I would actually go before then and say, well, we've got this idea of a break, 1868. Um, what does that break do? How is that break remembered? Or how does that break inform then these categories that emerge later? Uh, so right now I'm actually teaching a course on modern Japanese literature. It's a survey course, and we've just started a unit on children's literature, actually. We just finished Miyazawa Kenji. As a Taisho writer, of course, but uh, this category of the child, uh, who constitutes or what, what constitutes the child and what is childhood, of course, um, is very much related to the Meiji period and to uh, the cha changing position of the child in society, the rise of industrial capitalism and all this sort of stuff that's going on not only in Japan, but around the world. So in order to read Miyazawa Kenji, you have to go back and think about um, how the child itself is, is a discursive category that uh, comes in, into being and informs, uh, stands in ambiguous relation to, perhaps, uh, this idea of children's literature. And one thing that I will say that uh, students have this idea that modernization equals westernization, and they often try to read um, everything, at least that comes um, out of the Meiji Restoration uh, in those terms. But uh, I mean, if you think about texts like, uh, in, for example, we did Hikuchi Chiyo's Nigorie, or um, Troubled Waters, I guess is the translation. Um, in some ways, it's thinking about uh, the past. Certainly, it's a story, um, again, about this uh, woman who works in an unlicensed brothel. And uh, at the end of the story, I don't know if I should warn you, there's a spoiler alert. The, <laughs> she ends up dying uh, along with her former lover and we don't know if it's a double suicide or if uh, she's been murdered there's some question about that but it ends on this note where uh, at, at night people will sometimes see this hitodama, right? this kind of ghostly light appearing over her grave and uh, what does that mean so we can't understand that story i think um, without thinking about uh, the changing idea or the changing uh, kind of position and 
institution of prostitution. Can't think about it in terms of right, conventions or um, discourses of double suicide. And again, they emerged before 1868. The way the story is told and the way in which the narrative voice emerges is in some ways indebted to linguistic reforms, technological reforms that occurred uh, after 1868. So the, both are occurring at the same time. Talking about Meiji writers, the, the ones that often come to mind are the canonical writers, you know, Higuchi Ichio, uh, Natsume Soseki. What are some other Meiji writers that you would recommend to people looking to read more Japanese literature, especially from the Meiji period? Mm, that's a really good question. I actually would go with people like Natsume Soseki, these canonical writers, and among them, you've got certainly very canonical works like uh, Kokoro, like uh, Bochan, <laughs> which, again, are very easy to incorporate into classes that are thinking about westernization, modernization, uh, the role of the modern individual and um, individuality or individualism uh, in this changing context and so forth and so forth. But... Soseki also had all this other stuff, right, that he was writing. Uh, he went to Manchuria and to Korea and wrote right, this travelogue, Mankan Tokoro Dokoro, uh, Travels in Manchuria and Korea. He was composing kanji. He was writing um, all this experimentally, kind of linguistically experimental stuff while he was in London um, and after he came back from London. So not only um, like the Tower of London, Dondonto, which is written in uh, a kind of Genbunichi prose that's closer to um, what we think of as being soseki, but also other kinds of writing too that experiment with uh, kanbun-esque writing or kind of haikai style. So the um, the great variety, even in a, a so-called kind of canonical writer like soseki, could be, I think, very productively examined in a course about Meiji literature. And again, why is it that Kokoro is read and Mankan Tokodoko isn't is a question that you could pose in class and kind of relate that to questions of uh, canonization, of uh, historical narratives, and uh, right, the perspectives that we hold today about the past. One of the themes that we often hear about in, in works by Natsume Soseki, or I mean, in addition to Westernization, uh, people will, will say, but yes, there's, there's a lot of ambivalence towards modernity and so you can read certain certain stories as, as uh, fears of over-Westernization, Tayamakatai or Mori Ogai. You know, they're pointing out some of the bad parts of Westernization. And it always seems like that's the, the narrative that many people go to. Should we really read all of this literature as being ambivalence of modernity and a return towards tradition? Well, even, again, for, I mean, like, Mori Ogai, right, and uh, Mai Hime, something like Mai Hime, which, again, is very much thought of in terms, uh, or very much read or kind of introduced in, in courses, which is this um, question of westernization or modernization, Japan vis-a-vis -vis the West, in this case, Germany, right? This guy uh, goes to Germany and studies there and falls in love with uh, this girl, this dancing girl, abandons her, 
goes back to Japan. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's yeah. often like, oh, see, this is a Japanese writer saying, well, we have to shun the West and come back to Japanese traditions, right? Yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, uh, I mean, the way that the, the narration, first of all, is structured, we've, he, it's a retrospective narration, which I find quite interesting. And it's this guy who's on a boat and he's thinking back to his time in Germany. And he's not, he hasn't arrived in Japan yet. He's kind of in the middle. Um, and he's using this um, very experimental kind of elevated prose to describe his encounter, and one that's very much a kind of a mixture, or um, uh, a kind of a mixture of classical diction, but also uh, unconventional grammatical forms, new types of vocabulary, everything. And so, what does it mean like, to? think about a place like Germany through that kind of language. What does it mean that this uh, protagonist, uh, Toyotaro, I believe his name is, right, um, is conceptualizing or thinking about um, his memories of this foreign experience through that kind of pose? What does it mean that he's, um, in some ways, uh, I mean, how is the representation of the foreign woman, I guess, being expressed through that kind of language. These are questions, I guess, as a literature scholar, I'm much more, much more interested in than <laughs> trying to plot out kind of this path of Westernization. time to the Meiji period. What's one thing from the present day that you would take back with you and why? Such an interesting question. I like thinking about it. I don't know if I have a really good response. I read a lot of science fiction and I think the consensus often in science fiction is that going back in time only does bad things. So I don't want to mess with the time space continuum. But if I could safely go back, uh, I, I think I would introduce something, some kind of modern medicine or technological innovation that could help people live longer. Of course, I say this kind of an altruistic way to help people and you know, deal with things like tuberculosis, but a lot of these writers that I like from the Meiji period die so young. I mean, Hibe Chichio dies young. Uh, Ishikawa Takaboku dies young of tuberculosis. Um, going later on, all these writers. And so I just really would have loved to have had them live longer, write more, uh, leave more things for us to read. What's one book you would take from today back to the Meiji period? Um, it's an amazing question. And I have two different answers kind of that have sprung to mind. I think if I were to try and introduce a novel or maybe an author going back in time to Meiji readers, I'd like to introduce Kazuo Ishiguro, who recently right, won the Nobel Prize in, in Literature, and a work like When We Were Orphans, for example, um, thinking about... That, is that, I don't think I know that one. Uh, it's about um, a, a man... It takes place, I believe... It's been a while since I've read it, in like the 1930s, I think. Late 1930s, this member of the British Empire who is trying to figure out... I solve a mystery. He's a famous detective. Um, and 
he's trying to solve these various mysteries, but there's also the mystery of his own past. And he grew up in China, and so um, the war and the uh, memories of the war kind of complete are, are all figured into that novel in very interesting ways. And of course, Kazuo Ishigo himself, as uh, an author who writes in English and um, has won right, the Nobel Prize, and I mean, what um, what would major readers think, I guess, of the histories that have produced a man like him? and the, the literature that he's produced. Another thing that I might want to, I'm just curious to know how, for example, popular fiction that's written today that's set in the Meiji period. And I'm thinking, for example, the, this manga series, like Dunonin Kenshin, I don't know if you know it. It's this long manga no, <laughs> <laughs> series about this guy who uh, fought, he, um, he was a Nonin and he fought on behalf of... Um, the uh, Satsuma, I think, and they win the war, of course, or they, they restore the emperor, and now it's a new age. Uh, but he refuses to give up his sword, but he also refuses to kill again. And so uh, he wanders around uh, trying to save people in the early decades of, of Meiji. It's just kind of a manga that's meant for boys. It has a lot of fight scenes in it, but mm-hmm. very interesting ideas. About <laughs> so what would, I guess... Uh, <laughs> Maybe I would take back The Last Samurai. People would be like, who oh, is yeah. this Tom Cruise yeah. fellow? <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research, and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.